Welcome to another episode of Pod Like a Hole presents a space podity. Um, here we are doing David Bowie's discography in random order, and we often find ourselves uh, going through the maze of his, all of his other accoutrement and his ancillary work, and that's where we've landed tonight. I feel that the labyrinth. Uh, the soundtrack, the movie, was such a big tentpole for a lot of his later day fans um, because for myself, that was my introduction to the man when I was such a wee lad. A man in short pants, as they say. And I feel that it was pretty necessary for us to actually give it the proper treatment. Call this episode what you will. It is kind of like a proper episode and a B-side episode rolled into one. Um, but this is Mark. As you probably are familiar, if you're a longtime listener, but I'm always joined with my co-hosts, my compatriots, um, and uh, co-creators. Steve and Eric, are you out there? Ah, uh, yes, it's me, it's Steve. Just peeing in a fountain here because usually when people meet me, that's the best way to understand what I'm all about. Just like Hogwarts. That's how our friendship actually happened. Um, I saw you on the side of the road, peeing in a pond, and wearing that little goblin hat. Uh, but Eric, are you out there? I am, and I am just stomping up the stairs, screaming, slamming the door behind me, and shoving my face into pillow, uh, screaming about the unfairness in the world. Um, so I'll be the role of Sarah tonight. Ah, uh, yes. Um, and we're not just the three of us tonight. We have pulled someone in, our Sir Didymus, if you will. Um, and uh, that man is Chris Cook. Chris, are you out there? I'm here, boys, and I move the stars for no one. That's right. The old MC Escher, uh, the iconic scene in Labyrinth and uh, featured heavily in the trailer that my kids watch pretty much every other day. Nice job. Um, who, do we have anyone else on the line? I, I want to say we may have um, our guest critic that shows up every episode um, That's right. on, a, on this one. Exactly. We got a little extra member of the peanut gallery here. Um, this being one of Lennox's favorite David Bowie things, he's decided to hang out. He might make a few comments. He might get tired and go to bed, but he's he's here. Say hi, Lennox. Hello. There you okay, go. Got a microphone. All right. Hey there, Lennox. We happy to have you on the show. And uh, I think you're actually better on the microphone than your father is, which doesn't surprise me at all. It sounds like you're leaning in and you're speaking. <laughs> Yeah. Kids are natural. Do as He's I say, not as I do. Yes, Chris. Chris Chris Cookies, we call him. I've known Chris for years now, maybe a decade, maybe 15 years. 15 years feels about right. Uh, I, through the, the Joviera connection, that group of Sacramento people who I assimilated after my true friendships with my record store people yeah. went into phase two also known as the Hollywood Friends. And they could not be more Hollywood than uh, anyone you've ever met. As a matter of fact, most of them grew up in Sacramento, and that means they are the absolute op opposite of Hollywood. And some of them are trash birds. 
Cookie's a good one. We bond over the A's and uh, late night texts about the state of the world. And by texts, I mean Twitter. For sure, yeah. It's been way too long. I'm happy I uh, got drunk enough one night to offer to be on this episode. And, you know, the offer was out there. I had to stick with it. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm thrilled to be here. Chris, why is Labyrinth the episode that you wanted to be on? What's uh, What is your Labyrinth story? Well, um, I mean, that's why I reached out and offered uh, to join you guys if you'd have me on this episode. I mean, this is definitely when I first became aware of David Bowie. Uh, different from you guys, I definitely, this is who David Bowie was to me for much of my childhood, including my teenage years. I never really uh, took a deep dive in into Bowie's disc- discography. Um, I, my, probably my second most, uh, my second most, uh, what you call it, the uh, exposure to David Bowie would be the work on Lost Highway soundtrack. After that, I was kind of like, you know, I really need to dig into Bowie one day, Uh, but it never really happened. I don't know whether streaming uh, not being an option or, you know, just I'm, I'm unlike you guys. I did not work at uh, Dimple Records or any other record store. So uh had a kid young and just kind of Labyrinth was David Bowie to me. Uh, my daughter loved Labyrinth. She wanted to watch it three times a day, either that or Finding Nemo. And so I watched it a whole bunch in my childhood and all throughout her childhood. So it's a really uh, nostalgic, doubly nostalgic movie to me uh, and album. The songs just bring up random memories and glimpses of my childhood and my daughter's childhood. Um, but, you know, uh, after uh, I did buy Blackstar right when it came out, just kind of on a whim. I didn't have any idea Bowie was sick or anything. And it really, it really uh, resonated with where I was at the time. I know I was in like a dark place and it just, you know, it definitely strummed those strings well and then you know when he died uh it was just a shock to me i had no idea he was terminally ill or anything um actually i reached out to you steve after that and just kind of was like man i this is the time i gotta dig into bowie what do what do you suggest and you just you kind of threw out some ideas and i went through his discography then and you know i knew his hits uh and i did i did a pretty deep dive on his stuff but just it it did not resonate like this journey you guys have brought me on on this podcast has i mean it's just been it's been a thrill uh just learning more about it learning how the music was made where he was at the time the the reasons behind all these different personas and and it's just been a, a wonderful trip i'm happy to be a small part of it thank you for having me guys mark did you have a similar way you got into uh david bowie and labyrinth Absolutely. I remember when um, I was young, I was really into the Jim Henson uh, creature shop. Um, And of course, this had a connection with having George Lucas be a producer and uh, also somewhat of a screen writer for this one. Uh, I know that he's not credited as the uh, person that did the screenplay, but, um, you know, it had those two elements for me. 
Um, David Bowie was not anyone that I was familiar with uh, for the longest time. I actually thought that was his real hair. Um, and he was certainly androgynous and to the point where, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't know if necessarily it was uh, a man supposed to be a woman um, or, or whatever it is. And I'm not going to get into any sort of like uh, controversial statements at the time, but as a young kid, um, you know, I came for the Muppets and Bowie just happened to be there. Um, and um, yeah, I, I'd have to say I uh, appreciated the music. Um, you know, when I was of that age of 1986, I was probably five, but I probably didn't come along to this one uh, probably until I was like seven or eight. So home video releases is, is essentially where it, it got me uh, more interested. And anytime it came on t- television, whether it be cable or broadcast. Um, but then uh, it really actually hit a resurgence um, uh, during the high school years when I really started to get more in, involved in music. Um, I still thought David Bowie was more of a, uh, an oddity, a classic rock oddity that, you know, he was definitely seen as an artist that really marched to the beat of his own drum. But I really wasn't a fan of you that was more along the lines of like your Pink Floyds and the Doors. Whenever I talked about listening to classic rock, but my friends, however, uh, probably a listener of the show, Seth, um, he was the one that um, brought this back to life for me. And uh, another longtime friend of the show, may he rest in power, our friend Jason. Um, those two would talk about Labyrinth anytime we would go over there for one of their. You know, late night hangs where we're just playing video games and staying up tall, ungodly hours of the night. And we would talk about magic dance and David Bowie's cod piece. And uh, we'd do the stupid voices from Hoggle and uh, just sit around and just laughing our asses off about that particular um, movie. And then when I really got into David Bowie, it, this one always just seemed like yeah, that's so wild that his career took him into this trajectory where he did a kid's movie. Um, but it is, you know, I, I still have a really warm place in my heart for this this whole era um, of Bowie doing this. And the Jim Henson creature stuff, I still never lost my love for that. Um, I'm always entertained by practical effects like that. Um, and, you know, love Jim Henson. Jim Henson was an absolute genius uh, for what he brought into the world. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much my history with Labyrinth. And uh, it certainly was my introduction to who David Bowie was, but it didn't necessarily help walk me through the door of finding out more about who David Bowie was really all about, if that makes any sense. Yeah, pretty spot on. Um, At some point in the late 80s, uh, my dad... Bought us our first VHS player, recorder, and he borrowed our friends as well and then rented like 20 movies and then just <laughs> ripped them all in our, at our home that one weekend. And, you know, uh, one, uh, and Dark Crystal and Labyrinth were there. And for whatever reason, um, they were on the same, the same video recorded at the slowest speed possible to fit as much on there. And, uh, for some reason, we just watched Dark Crystal like crazy, and and then I already we were already a big you know Muppet family in general um, between Star Wars and other stuff, and um, and then uh, then Labyrinth. I feel like we got into that a little bit later um, in childhood, but 
but just absolutely just loved it and a great time. And yeah, yeah, there was some Bowie. Bowie was a presence in that movie and uh, <laughs> Bowie stirred up some some possible confusion in that movie. And I'm not afraid. I'm not I'm not embarrassed to admit it. Um, and uh, just super charismatic, super charismatic. And um, then later in middle school, um, when similar to what Chris said, uh, I, you know, just being really into Nine Inch Nails and, um, you know, seeing on, uh, you know, references, Trent Reznor always referencing Bowie and then they were touring together. And then obviously um, the horse has been beat to death, but I, you know, was at that show. But before that, I wanted to hear, or actually my dad bought the Bowie album because he was going to take us to the concert, the outside. So, um, so basically it was Labyrinth, some of the hits that I heard here and there, but, and then I was always open to Bowie because he was so cool in Labyrinth. And then, um, you know, and then hearing outside and then actually becoming a fan of his contemporary stuff. And it was a great show. It helped me enjoy it more because I had that kind of experience was more open to him all because of labyrinth. But it was funny when we were leaving that show, this like drunk lady in the, in the uh, parking lot was like, you're only here for labyrinth. What do you know about Bowie? And she was like <laughs> rubbing it in my face. And I was like, like outside, you know, I was like, okay. Yeah. You're, yeah, you're, you're the, you're the true fan, true fan. But anyways, I, uh, same, same as you guys. Um, movie definitely sparked it, sparked some imagination for me. Um, Lennox, what do you have to say about Labyrinth? Um, what is that? So, really? what's your history with Labyrinth? When do you? Um, I've watched it since I was a baby. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For a long time, you said it was your favorite Bowie album. Did the songs just remind you of the movie? Or... Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's tied for my favorite Bowie album. Okay. There you go. Yeah, what's your other number one? Mm, um, Scary Monsters, and number two in a very close was Nuts Dance, and I also really like the Sound Brilliant choices Tool there, <laughs> Linux. Good, uh, good choices. You're 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 always making good choices, I think. And uh, right down to your your Bowie albums. You can't choose who your father is, unfortunately. But you know, what are you gonna do? Uh, yeah, my uh, my deal with Labyrinth. Is I remember watching it as a kid, obviously in the mid '80s. Uh, I had an aunt who I mentioned on the show before was my quote-unquote cool aunt. May she rest in peace. And uh, she had all like a lot of weird stuff. She liked a lot. She she got me into Stephen King, uh, alternative comic books, uh, some good music, but definitely she had Labyrinth, and I believe she even had Labyrinth on something that was uh, in between a VHS player. And a laser disc. It was like a giant computer three by five floppy disc, but the size of a record album. And I I liked that movie from the start as a child. Some parts kind of horrified me, but not nearly as much as the troll from Cat's Eye, which she also introduced me to. And for years, I would not sit near a uh, a wall because I thought that a creepy troll would crawl out of it. Um. There, there is some serious highlights in both the uh, the film and the soundtrack that you know to this day. Whenever I do think of David Bowie and I want to like do his uh, voice, for whatever reason, my level set is um, the beginning part of Magic Dance. Just that whole back and forth dialogue. That is like anytime someone asks me like do a David Bowie impression, which honestly doesn't happen that often. 
Um, I'll go ahead and just throw that you remind me of the babe part. So I was just going to say that's where his love for call and response comes from. That's right. Exactly right. Um, there's some overlap with 87, which we already covered, so I'm just going to do a quick a, a quick refresher. Um, you know, Gipper, Gipper was still president. Uh, Gipper's starting to lose it a little bit, Mr. Reagan. Uh, Iran-Contra affair happened. Uh, oh, yes. Old, uh, old Ronald probably had trouble with ramps. I'll tell you that much. And so does the new guy. And something tells me that he'll be so embarrassed about this, he'll probably talk about it for... I don't know, approximately 13 minutes at that dumb rally he's going to have in a few weeks. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I just could just imagine him like all rubbery and bouncing down a ramp, you know, arms flailing. Uh, uh, I, but maybe I'm just thinking of that Genesis uh, music video. Um, but I don't, yeah, I don't know if he can handle a ramp. Um, <laughs> but he certainly uh, didn't remember. Uh, Chernobyl happened. Uh, Chernobyl, which... Uh, the HBO miniseries was fantastic, directed by the director of all those Blackstar music videos for Bowie. So if you haven't watched the Chernobyl miniseries, uh, it's fantastic uh, from last year. But Chernobyl, the actual Chernobyl, the reality series, <laughs> happened in 1986. It's not funny. I'm not laughing. I'm sorry. So, but we've talked a lot about it. Um, popular gifts this year were, and by gifts, I don't mean GIF. I mean GIFT. There weren't such things as GIF, GIFs back then, but um, you had your Nintendo Entertainment System. Um, you had your uh, Watchables. Um, of course, you had your Chuck Norris action figures. Chris, do you have any of these growing up? Oh, yeah. Not Chuck Norris, but NES right. for sure. Right, right, right. Um... But yeah, let's just get to pop culture here. Um, so as far as like big movies to come out, this, this as we'll talk about in a little bit, did not make top 10 boffo box office uh, list. Uh, movies like Top Gun, Crocodile Dundee, Karate Kid 2, Star Trek 4, Aliens. These were the, the big... Anybody's favorite Star Trek 4? Star Trek 4? No. It's probably my... It'd be number two. It'd be Wrath of Khan. And then after that, it'd be The Undiscovered Country. And then after that, uh, it would probably be Star Trek Four. Yeah. 
<laughs> that they all rank equally to me because I cannot watch anything Star Trek. I'm sorry, guys. It, my eyes glaze over. I tip over. I fall asleep. Cut his mic. Thank you. Cut his mic. Thanks, guys. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you vetted this guy. <laughs> right. So, music Lionel Richie, Simply Red, um, Greatest Love of All by Whitney Houston, Walk Like an Egyptian by the Bengals, Prince, Pet Shop Boys. Big year for these bands. Eric, what a what Prince album came out in nineteen eighty six? Ah, yes, of course. Let me just—I just wrote that in small font. Let me just zoom in on that. <laughs> oh boy, let me just get right in there. That's parade. That's parade. Ah, yes, parade. I always like that album cover. Yes, I've been listening to Prince a lot, uh, along with Mastodon. He's been some of my quarantine music. For whatever reason, when uh, my dearly departed dog Bruno passed away, Pr- Prince became uh, the soundtrack. Uh, it all started with me listening to the title track on Purple Rain while I was cleaning up the last of his dog shit out in the yard the day after he died. Crying like a little man. Parade was the uh, soundtrack to Under the Cherry Moon. I think I think season three is going to be us reviewing all the Prince movies, oh. <laughs> not necessarily the albums, but the movies. So you know, you start with Purple Rain, and then you do Graffiti Bridge, and I think that's it. If we were, if we were to do all his albums, uh, it would take three times as long, maybe four times as long as how long this damn David Bowie podcast is taking to get done, and we would be driven to madness. And of course. We'd find it upon ourselves. We'd have to do all the B-sides for all the uh, the other bands he helped get started. Your, you know, your, uh, your Morris Days of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I and- finally got my daughter uh, listening to that, uh, was it a piano and a microphone, the live album? Oh, oh yeah, that God. one just came out from the, from the archives. Yeah, oh, my God. I, that, that just... What, oh. What's the one song in there? It's um, no, seventeen days, man. That that will just oh, that doesn't get you uh, jumping and jiving. I don't know what does. Little he does some scats in there and everything. It just oh, made me a Prince fan. Uh, as far as TV shows <laughs> go, Falcon Crest and Dynasty, big shows, Remington Steel, A Team was still going strong. Yeah, all those shows I, were the same shows. All the 80s shows. <laughs> <laughs> They're just different titles for different regions. Exactly. Uh, 80s sitcoms were coming up like Cheers, uh, Family Ties, Growing Pains, and the Redacted Show. Um, a popular family sitcom uh, that shall not be named. Um, due to- I'm not so sure why, uh, you know, we... we, we backtrack and and toss old shows in the fire for the stupidity of people today i don't know why kurt cameron seems to get a pass and growing pains doesn't get redacted considering he's a uh he, he's a he's a lunatic well he he proves god and his only evidence a banana yep uh, it's, a, it's a great have you ever seen fuller house 
my wife has been watching Fuller House, and Lisa Loeb was on it, and they acted like Lisa Loeb was a a real celebrity. And uh, yes, then Kirk Cameron appeared in it playing himself. I don't know why anybody would watch that shit. Yeah, yeah. Lennox says. There's something about like just brightly colored sitcoms with kids and a laugh track that is like catnip for for uh, certain certain kids, and apparently my daughter is one of them. So, all the shows I watch with Eric are ones that don't have a laugh. You track. mean Father? <laughs> yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> no respect. I don't no respect. Wow. So the last thing makes you want to hear respect goes out the window. Just, I think the audience calls you air. <laughs> the audience doesn't call me anything. Uh, <laughs> all right, next. Uh, that's it. That's it for uh, for movies. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure uh, the uh, crack of the baseball bat was happening this year, though, Steve. Just like it's looking this summer and this year, there will be no sports. And I'm the fellow sports fan down with sports. We don't need sports in 2020. We can live. Let me just grinning ear to ear right now. Uh, let me just put it this way. PE is not his favorite subject in school. Um, started as an idea with uh, Jim Henson after um, the Dark Crystal. And he was kind of creating this dark fantasy that was good for kids, good for adults, that kind of thing. And he and he wanted to continue. And originally, Labyrinth was going to be a sequel to Dark Crystal. It was going to be like a much older gen, the, um, the, um, the male Gelfling. It was... Um, where he was now king and he had a jester named Snotweed. And um, they, ba- they basically are get stuck in this goblin kingdom in their realm. And um, there's something about a prophesized baby and a lot of disparate ideas, but enough to where they, they kind of started putting it together and drawing storyboards for it. Um, that brings in Bowie for a minute because they caught him. They were actually were given a ride in Bowie's limo during the serious moonlight tour and where they were able to show him storyboards and say like, we want to do like, you know, uh, dark crystal again, but maybe we're going to have some humans in it. Would you maybe be interested? And that was kind of a game changer for the team because there was no humans, you know, obviously in dark crystal and it definitely piqued Bowie's interest. And it wasn't long after that, they realized they couldn't keep it in the dark crystal universe with humans. They scrapped that idea. They brought on Terry Jones from the, uh, you know, Monty Python come up with a script and um you know he punched it out they started working on costume ideas and story ideas and um they rewrote the script uh using like jim henson's people his writers and they took all the funny out of it and they realized that's not going to work so they gave it back to terry jones to kind of punch it up one more time and um it was a long process i mean years uh years of development and uh that's kind of the background. 
as far as uh, pre-production and getting Bowie involved. I was really wondering where this crazy story came from. That makes so much more sense that it was supposed to be a sequel to Dark Crystal because I was like, this, this, this has a hint of a plot that makes sense, but like watching it as an adult, it just doesn't quite connect. They just needed to get to the uh, get to the labyrinth, and they kind of like felt like they threw together a, a story in some sense. The, but that that totally put, brings it together for me that. They had to kind of adjust that it was a, a sequel, and that's crazy. They're definitely backwards mapping. Was Wasn't staying in the consideration, do you? That would have been something. So, yeah, they also considered Michael Jackson, who um, I think the songs would have still been cool, but, I mean, Michael Jackson, the whole um, allure, the attraction piece probably would have been would have been difficult. Um, uh, and, uh, the and especially because the whole idea is, you know, and we'll talk about this more, but Bowie represents adulthood and this kind of scary, like the love part of being an adult. And, you know, Michael Jackson was like the perpetual child. So that, that, so yes, the Michael Jackson is the goblin King. That would have been something else entirely. I think there would have been a lot more dancing. You know, David just kind of, he kind of stands around and walks and, and kind of shuffles, does his, he does his plastic soul shuffle in some of the songs. It would have been a lot more mobile with Michael Jackson. I, the songs, that would have been, I feel like they all would have sound like uh, the way you make me feel. It would have been that style, Michael Jackson. That would have been interesting. I don't think the Jennifer Connelly attraction would have worked exactly the same. Right. Uh, they also considered David Lee Roth and Ted Nugent for the role. Oh, God. <laughs> Can we have them redo a version? Oh, my God. Oh. Now, I, I do think that they really missed an opportunity here. And the zeitgeist of the 80s and uh, personality-wise, they could have given this movie a shot in the arm if uh, David Lee Roth would have been the Goblin King. I would have loved that. Doing a little bit of uh, Roxo action. Yeah, that David, uh, DLR. Oh, boy. Underground would have been perfect. I could, I could actually, they also considered like Sting and, but I think David Lee Roth had that, that kind of fun streak where I think he could have, he could have pulled it off. But, um, but ultimately they, uh, they got Jennifer Connelly. She was a pretty, she was pretty new, but she had a little experience. She was on um, like the year or two before Sergio Leone's um, Once Upon a Time in America came out. And she had a pretty good role as a kid in that, in the first half of that movie. Um, and that one guy had a lot of attention. It was definitely in the pop culture conversation. Um, so, uh, but this was her first uh, leading role. Um, she also did um, Dario Argento's Phenomena. So she was kind of like, um with italian cinema even though she was you know she american she was a uh she seemed to have a lot of success in italian cinema growing up um but she got she got in this and you know she really she hit it off with with bowie and and um she kind of came to listen to his music by working with him she wasn't really uh, aware of it before that and became a fan and she's quoted as saying he kind of became a hero um 
and she made the, he made the experience a lot easier for her. Um, and, uh, obviously she's gone on to, to big things since then. Um, old Jennifer Conley, you know, as a kid, this is my introduction to her and she has such range. And I, I've always found interesting that she can do high art and low art, but she always brings her a game. You know, she was in the rocketeer. She was in dark city. She was also in things like House of Sand and Fog that she might have been nominated for an Oscar for. And, of course, I was the weirdo that saw Requiem for a Dream in the theater three times. Uh, Jennifer Connelly, always been a fan, always will be a fan. Yeah. She's in that new Snowpiercer TV show. You could tell she had the chops even at 14. I mean, it's just even though this was a silly little Muppet movie, essentially, I mean... She was the most believable part, you know, her acting as a 14-year-old. Yeah, I mean, at first, we'll talk about it, but she's a little, like, overdramatic, but then... Yeah. But then she nails all the relationships, like, with Hoggle and all the the the, the creatures. That's hard to do. And you really believe, you know, she's creating these friendships with these um, creatures. So she's great in it. Fun. Um, the rest of the, uh, the performers... Um, you know, a lot of, of, uh, uh, Henson regulars, his son was the voice of Hoggle. Brian Henson was the voice of Hoggle. Um, and, uh, you have like the voice of, uh, Dave, uh, what's his name? Goals. He's the voice of, uh, Gonzo. He does like three voices in this. Uh, you have Kevin clash who had a little bit of a scandal and his later before he had to quit being Elmo, but he was Elmo. He's one of the fireys. Um, so a lot of, a lot of the Muppet regulars and, uh, yeah. Believe it or not, the baby uh, who played Toby was a Brian Froud's son. And he later became a puppeteer on the dark crystal. Right. His dad, Brian, Brian Froud did the conceptual art for this movie and dark crystal. So. Well, Brian Froud and his, uh, did he do yes album covers? I bet he did. He's an interesting artist there. I think I'm going to spend father's day watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy because we're talking about this. Got it. <laughs> Isn't that kind of how they, how they, uh, isn't that kind of what they used to show Bowie, like to get him to show some interest was his artwork? Is that my, exactly. That yeah. When they were in the limo, they showed the, some of the, I think actually maybe dark, they were still in production for dark crystal. So maybe that's what they were showing. Like, we're going to do some of this, but we want you to be in it. And this is what in Bowie, like was, was like really into the visuals and, and could, that whole dark fantasy thing. Exactly. Makes sense. Um, yeah. Producer George Lucas was for sure involved. Um, there's a great on the Blu-ray. There's a great hour long documentary on the behind the scenes. Um, and Lucas is in there, but he specifically made a decision. He said this is like, he wasn't going to do any of the press around this because he didn't want to steal Jim Henson's thunder. This is really Jim Henson's ship. So, um, you know, I think it was their creative consultant. He was definitely the liaison, um, you know, between Hollywood and, Old George was also working on uh, Howard the Duck, <laughs> and I guarantee that oh. he probably considered Howard the Duck to be his next masterpiece, good, good while Labyrinth was just a uh, a side gig. 
Yeah, I don't think it was him. Oh boy. Oh, Lennox has something to say. Um, Did you like Howard the Duck, Lennox? I don't know what that is. Okay. But I have a question. <laughs> um, well, I actually have a comment. Did Did anybody know about um that Hoggle was lost in Alabama and then he went into a museum? That's right. Lennox is bringing up um, uh, after filming, there was an airport mix-up and the Hoggle costume worn by a um, a uh, female actor with, with dwarfism. Um, they lost the costume in Alabama and it is now in a, a museum for lost airport luggage, the Hoggle costume. Wait, Lennox, are you telling me that Hoggle is a costume? <laughs> <laughs> I was a real person. Oh my god! Hoggle is one of the best puppets I've ever seen. That thing is so expressive. It took five people with remote controls to to manipulate the face. Um, yeah, it's 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 actually quite a a masterpiece for puppetry. Um, I you know is Hoggle really a puppet or is it uh, Rhea Perlman in a lot of makeup? <laughs> um what one uh oh yeah and, and obviously in that original script the 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 hoggle was the the jester that was accompanying old jen if it was going to be a, a dark crystal sequel and that that snot tooth jester ended up becoming hoggle so he the idea for hoggle was there from the beginning now here's something that i find that i that i was that was wild I was watching the um, behind the scenes thing and I see an, somebody I'm very familiar with and she is the choreographer of all the um, the baby stuff and all of the, the ballroom scene and she goes by uh, Cheryl McFadden. It's Gates McFadden. That was, her, that was her name. And obviously in the next three years before Next Generation started, she changed her name. But she was uh, the choreographer. Bowie had his own choreographer. Um, but she did everything. She did the baby choreography and she did all of the ballroom stuff. And um, it makes sense because I just watched an episode of Next Generation where like I feel like once a season she's teaching somebody how to dance on that show. So Yates McFadden, also known as Beverly Crusher. You know, my grandfather had a crush on her. He was always a big fan of old Gates. She kind of looked like my grandma. May my grandma rest in peace. Uh, she died around Christmas this year. Uh, dementia. My grandfather, actually, the timely, uh, he, he's in the hospital with COVID. Uh, he's getting over it. My aunt has it as well. Um, that guy's pushing 90, and in the last two years, his house burnt down in one of the Reading fires. And then his wife died of dementia. And in the last three years, he has uh, had a stroke, which he recovered from almost fully, and also beat some kind of cancer. So I I think he'll uh he'll probably kick Kobe's ass. I hope so. You know. Jim Chambers, hell of a guy. He might have some very antiquated views, but uh he'll always, <laughs> you know, follow them up by reminding you that he was friends with the one black guy in Shasta, California. So I guess that makes it all better. Oh. Crushing on Crusher. Yeah. All right, I'm going to start Star Trek tomorrow. Hey, look at you. Look at you. Uh, so 
Um, One other little cool behind the scenes thing is um, they filmed this next on the lot um, in uh, Pinewood Studios right next to um, in the UK. Sorry. And and right next to them, uh, Ridley Scott was filming the film Legend. And um, and sometimes I thought they shared props because if you remember Legend, I don't know the last time you saw it, everything is covered in glitter in this movie. And there's definitely scenes of Labyrinth where everything's covered in glitter. But the adorable part is Brian Henson met actress Mia Sara from Legend. You'd also know her from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And they got married. I believe they're still married to this day. So adorable story. There you go. Two fantasy movies, two people involved. Love connections being made. And good for Brian Henson. I am not a fan of movies where large people are shrunk down and they put fairy wings on. I mean, I might like the movies, but the parts of those movies where they appear always bug me. Like in this, uh, Julia Roberts in uh, Hook and uh, Legend. <laughs> not not a fan of people being shrunk down to fairy size. It's weird. Uh, um, so there is, you know, just to kind of go into the story a little bit, um, you know, you've got... Uh, Sarah, played by Jennifer Connelly, and um, she is uh, things aren't great at home. Her dad is, is 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 she's got a stepmom, and I think the parents were being perfectly reasonable, asking her to babysit, but she can't. Doesn't want to babysit. She wants to just to go recite lines from a play in a park. In the park. She's busy. She's a drama. She's a drama club kid. Did you guys ever have the yeah. pleasure of being a part or or knowing drama club kids in uh, in high school? I have a eighteen year old. Drama club kid daughter, yeah. Yes. Yes. Mark, Steve? No. Uh, those kids were mostly um, also in band uh, at our school, if I recall correctly. So um, they were essentially, I always considered them more band geeks um, than I did like theater. Yeah. And in high school, you know, you had the drama and band nerds like Eric. And, uh, Mark and no, I, no. we were somehow just a rung above them in the popularity scale, which uh, <laughs> that tells you something. I mean, essentially, you you have all the same uh, interests as the drama and band nerds, but you try to portray yourself as something a little more sinister with a better sense of humor. And also, you know, you might own some good Metallica albums. That's, uh, that's, hey. that's the angle we were going for. Hey, I I, uh, I played stand-up bass in the jazz band of my school and uh, in the 90s. No, I know, I know. But yeah, but uh, the drama group needed a pit a pit band to play live music for their, their show, so I was a, a part of that. Um, uh, and I definitely got to see some behind-the-scenes stuff, and maybe it's changed, but the cool part about you know, drama club, especially in the nineties, it was like a truly a place where, you know, your LGBTQ kids could be free and, and, uh, definitely a place for, for, uh, quirky people and, and weirdos, but also behind the scenes, they're all, they're all making out, breaking up everything. And everything is so big and loud behind the scenes too. So <laughs> maybe that's yeah, true. I, I definitely was around. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I wasn't in that in the 90s, but a lot of my uh, friends were, and uh, 
you know, I had uh, old John F. Kennedy in Sacramento. We they put on quite a rendition of Rocky Horror Picture Show where the uh, the scene where they're driving in the car in the rain. It was a uh, girl in lingerie opening and closing her legs as the windshield wipers. So it was pretty <laughs> risque stuff. Uh, and I mean, that, that that was just a sampling of what they got away with. I mean, they, they were pushing the envelope and I'm pretty sure they were all having some sort of uh, make out session backstage sure. between the scenes. Sure. It just felt like it, you know? Roman orgy back there. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. You, are you still around? Or are you going to go to bed? I'm still around. I'll oh. be around for a little bit. It's essentially uh, Eric and his wife are Hoggle and Sarah. I, think about I know where you're going with this, Steve, but I actually, <laughs> other other than a couple superficial things, I, 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 think you're, I think you're off the mark on this one, but, but go ahead. And by that, I mean uh, Eric is Rhea Perlman and his wife is Danny DeVito. My my wife my wife has some some stuff in common with Sarah for sure. She has the pewter figurines for all of the Lord of the Rings characters. Um, uh, she yes yes, but at the same time, she would be mortified to ever act a fraction of as dramatic as Sarah acts in the the first five minutes of this movie. <laughs> you know when Eric and I first were uh, hanging out with his wife, and by that I mean we all worked for the record store maybe i quit by that time but we were all friends or had friends by that time known each other for a while and you know there's that time of your life when you're just young and you go to people's houses late at night um i hope kids still do that today and eric and i went over to heather's house and this was definitely in the the stages of uh you know we knew that eric was trying to make something happen with heather and uh, I was just a a supporting a supporting player in this act of Eric's life, and I I think they were talking. We were at her apartment, and they were probably talking about something uh, ridiculous that Eric was trying to act like he knew about. Heather brought something up she was passionate about. Eric pretended to actually know about it. This will be a theme that continues to this day. And I was looking around her apartment, and I remember. I mean, this might just be retroactive history but uh, revisionist if you will but like glass containers that had little figurines and statues in them and then a bookshelf that would like very elaborately organized with just tomes like you wouldn't believe also probably making me want to watch Lord of the Rings on Father's Day and that's why I when I watch this movie I think Sarah is kind of like looking at what Heather might have been like when she was a teenager. Probably not nearly as uh, bitchy as Sarah is. I'm sorry to use the word bitchy in this case. Kind of as dramatic think of. as Sarah acts in exactly the first five minutes Eric of this movie. When he was a teenager. <laughs> she is almost unbearable in this movie. Just like, uh, leave me alone. Like, you know, I, I don't have to babysit. And she's just like slamming her door and flopping on her bed. Yeah. And it's just, she's just cranked up to 11 at the beginning of this movie. It's, it's, I mean, I, I, as a, as a, I think I'm the only one here with the kid old enough to leave at home to watch your other kid. 
I don't know. Mark. No, you're true. I'm uh, f- an eight-year-old okay. and a four-year-old over here. Okay. Oh, well, you're not far. Four years. But, yeah, I've, I've got – my kids are eight years apart. I had my first kid at 20, so i have like, leaving my uh, 16-year-old at home with the eight-year-old and now 18-year-old home with the 10-year-old. And it's like, hey, we're going to dinner. Okay, bye. It's like I, she's never reacted anywhere near as, as – dramatic as sarah is acting and it um, sounds like they like asked her beforehand and she's still throwing a fit it just <laughs> there there's actually the, picture uh, right out of the movie uh, like yeah over the, <laughs> the um the uh book we, we have this book on like kind of the backstory and there is there was a whole backstory and you kind of see it you see like the clippings that that sarah has of her mom who was like a famous actress and there was this apparently this whole backstory where she like her mom abandons her family and like runs off with this actor and, um, and you know, Sarah's just struggling to deal with those feelings. She's not quite mature enough to be able to deal with them appropriately. So she's, she's kind of like glamorizing her mom and like holds her up on a pedestal. So everything at home, her dad is a reminder of, you know, what her mom left him for. And, and, uh, and so there's this, all this drama. They don't even get to that in the movie, but apparently that was all, that was all in the early versions of the script. You're filling in the gaps. This is great. This it felt like we were missing something. So thank you. Right. Uh, like in Alice in Wonderland, um, there are things that are set up when you see her real life that kind of come up again uh, in her labyrinth. You know what I mean? Like just the, some of the themes that she's dealing with, and a lot of those being. Um, the temptation to retreat from problems into fantasy, uh, specifically when she is pulled into the junkie, the junk lady, the lady with that lives in the junk, and uh, junk lady, I think it's junk lady. Yeah, the memory thief, junk lady, horrifies me. Her little round face and her half circle mouth just tossing stuff on her back that has bothered me since I was a child. And sometimes I run into people in the real world that remind me of her and I'm triggered. Yeah. And then she ta- even takes her to her room and like it, that it's like that, the t- temptation of that comfort of just being kind of lost in nostalgia yeah. and not dealing with your problems like that. I think that, you know, they the had a good, their, their focus on the theme was good in this movie. But they do lose yeah. the thread of the actual plot. But you could make a case that every scene kind of ties into that that ultimate push and pull of the of the central conflict there. <laughs> yeah, we yeah we have a like a hardbound book of just kind of like the art and the background of 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 labyrinth, and that's not a comic. That's like. Uh, really gets into the nitty gritty of the notes and the and the building of the movie, but um, there is more recently a book called Labyrinth Coronation by Simon Spurrier as the writer, and um, it's done by Archaea or uh, yeah Archaea Press, which which they have the rights to almost all of the Jim Henson related comic book stuff. They did a Dark Crystal comic. They did the um, what was that one that was like a lost script, like the something sand the sad tale of sand. 
Tale of Sand, and, and it was Jerry Jewell and Jim Henson that wrote it, and um, Roman, Ramon Perez did the art. Yeah. Um, anyways, those those Arkea Jim Henson books are all are all pretty fun to dig into. Um, but uh, yeah, this Coronation, I did read the first volume of it. I, I didn't finish it, but I, I finished the first volume, but I didn't finish the whole story. And what, what it is, is it kind of tells you about how Jareth came to be. And uh, he, what, what's cool, uh, you know, he basically is this snotty lord in um, Venice uh, back in the, what, 1600s or something like that, 17th century. And, you know, he's, he's basically has no spine and is being controlled uh, by his father. And he has his wife that he totally betrays. and. Um, but it's every time he does something, he gives into temptation to be greedy or something, you see the goblins just pop out and start like calling to him. And it's very much like those early scenes in the movie when as, as Jennifer Connelly gets madder, the goblins kind of show up and start beckoning to her. And um, I like that kind of connection that, that the goblins kind of look for their emotional in and that's when they pop in and, and, and start calling. But yeah, there uh, there's this owl king of Goblin City that's that's dying and they need to find the replacement. And um, there's this war going on, and they decide Jareth is the guy to do it, and uh, that's what that book's about. It's pretty cool. The the art's fun, and it's it's pretty entertaining. And the way it's done is Jareth, kind of like between the raindrops, like moments during the movie that you didn't see Jareth, like after he sings Magic Dance, he sits down and tells everybody about where he came. You know, like it's kind of cool how they do the narr the narration, and then they do flashbacks to him as a, you know, a lord, and as he gets pulled over. So, anyways, there's that. Awesome. All right, just say, stop making that noise, man. <laughs> okay. Now we. Night Lennox. Night Lennox. I thought we were also going to hear uh, Eric put him in like the Skinner box or something like that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, what about this uh, uh, this news item that I'm hearing that they're going to try to. Um, bring life to this so either a sequel reboot remake uh any any nuggets on that you can drop in yeah i've heard about that too and it's just announced um and what they're gonna do i mean like pretty much the internet's all on fire like you can't recast the goblin king you can't recast jareth you could do in that world I mean, the Jim Henson company is still active. If anybody that saw that Netflix Dark Crystal show was given a just a feast of sensory pleasure, that show was amazing. Um, so they're still active and they're still doing a great job. But yeah, I mean, I think it would be a huge misstep if they tried to recast it. I mean, I guess they could do a younger Jareth. Um, but yeah, as far as there's no more details, but it is it is apparently happening. Yeah. You know how these things go. I wonder if they would do like a prequel because it did feel I would rather see a prequel that fills in what the hell's going on with the Goblin King. You know, he's the Goblin King. He's not a goblin. What's going on? We don't we don't know. Why does he want a baby? These things aren't explained. So I'd rather see a prequel than them to try to recast David Bowie of all people. You don't want to sure, see Adam Levine put on the Tina Turner wig? Oh, my God. Oh, God. <laughs> Oh my God! That yeah, that's probably not what we would see. <laughs> I mean, apparently the guy they got to direct this is a uh, your uh, 
uh, it's, he goes by Fetty Alvarez. He's a Uruguay. I'm not even going to try that. Uh, Uruguay. He's from Uruguay. He's a filmmaker. Uh, he did like uh, the Evil Dead remake in something called Don't Breathe. Um, so like, you know, listen, I love Evil Dead, but I'm not going to necessarily follow that that that, that career um yeah to this but i'm always worried when childhood loves like this or sequels are brought up i just dark crystal was a i was worried about that that was a that was a beautiful surprise but exactly yeah totally um we'll see about that yeah i mean and just to kind of name some of the other kind of cool characters in this uh you had obviously hoggle which we talked about um you have ludo who's this big giant like just hulking sweetheart big hairy you know orangutan looking oversized orangutan looking body that one the the suit was so heavy they had to the suit was so heavy they had to have two different guys um uh like share duties on that one guy had to be in and for a little while then he had to get out so it wasn't too taxing um, it was the horse technique. And someone who was in the back, someone who was in the front kind of thing. <laughs> no, no, just one person in the suit until they got tired and then they'd like gotcha. it out. That kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, it's felt like a kind of a big bird rig for that guy in there, but even heavier. Right. Uh you had um uh you know Sir Didymus and uh his uh <laughs> Ambrosius, his his dog. Ambrosius. It's funny because yes. they're both dogs. Like Sir Dinimus is definitely like a dog type goblin who rides on his uh his dog. Oh, I thought he was a fox. I guess you know you're yeah. right. I guess he looks more like a fox. That's true. Ambrosius, his dog is 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 half the time is a is a real dog and half the time is a puppet dog. Yeah. And is and is a uh, replica of her dog Merlin, right? Correct. In the real world. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So that's another example. Yeah. Like when her dog shows up in this land, when she's in her room, just like you said, Steve, she's got all the figurines. She's even got a Jareth figurine set up. She's reading a book called Labyrinth. So clearly that exists in her reality. And um, all these things kind of come back up when she, when she, when she crosses over. Um, when she asks the Goblin King to take her brother and then immediately regrets it. Um so, I mean, that's pretty much all I got on this. Um, we can definitely get into the music. Let's do it. Should, you should mention Trevor sure. Jones. Um, because he did the score of this movie, and when you get the soundtrack, it is. It's track like it starts off the first one's Trevor Jones and then uses the song Underground and kind of applies it to his his score. And then later in the soundtrack you get Underground by itself. Anyways, the rest of the album it goes like Trevor Jones song, Bowie song, Trevor Jones song, Bowie song. Um Steve, what did you think about the Trevor Jones score?
I think Trevor Jones' score brings a lot to this movie. Obviously, it's what a good score does. It is very of a time, but it is timeless. Uh, you can tell it was recorded in the 80s, and he was thinking about, I don't know, some kind of Renaissance Fair boom movement that may or may not have been happening at this time. I think it was. And it has the level of grandiosity and wonder that you need for this story. I think it, it works well. You know, I was going to say Ren Fair mixed with Top Gun. So oh, yeah. I hear Top Gun this opening title sound. Oh, sound, uh, sure. oh yeah. Song, it's like almost identical to Top Gun. Eric, who is Trevor Jones? What else? What else is Trevor uh, Jones? About? Not a lot. It took me um, half the movie till I realized Trevor Jones was not the writer Terry Jones. <laughs> but I mean, his score, his score work, I think, is serviceable. They wanted to do a contemporary score, so it had that synthy eighties sound. But he actually used some, like you said, he used some Runfair flutes for sure. Um, it what they wanted it to be a mix. Um, you know, Trevor Jones. Other works of note from our buddy Trevor Jones is Marvel Nemesis Rise right. of the Imperfects. That's a video games, and it wasn't that good. The TV show Dinotopia. Never watched that. I believe it was made off a, a kid's book from the time. Ah, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. That was uh, old Sean Connery's last role and a hell of a note to go out on. From Hell. That's, a, that's an all right flick. Uh, Notting Hill, Rat. That's a thrilling film. Uh, tying it all together with old Jake Hahn, Dark City. You know, I want to find an excuse to do a Dark City B side. I don't know what it is, but we'll find it in season three. GI Jane, Richard the Third, Ah, Kiss of Death. That's a fun one. In the Name of the Father. You know, my aunt Grace took me to see In the Name of the Father, in the theater. She used to take me to see movies that were wildly inappropriate. I'd say on a scale of uh, uh, The Crow to uh, Rising Sun with Sean Connery, In the Name of the Father fell somewhere in the middle, and she took me to see all those movies, including the movie Ricochet with Denzel Washington and John Lithgow. Wildly inappropriate to be taking a kid that was probably 11 to at the time. Cliffhanger. Last of the Mohicans. True Colors. Sea of Love. That's a good one, Sea of Love. All right, yeah, he's done a lot of movies. You hear that, like, bass arpeggio going on? Um, yeah, it, I mean, I feel like there's just guitars out the out the ass uh, all over his score, and, and it works. And then, yeah, and then you get a pan flute, so. Yeah, it feels, to me, it felt like, almost like, um, like, Double Dragon- Almost was like the the song where she's running through the labyrinth in the beginning. It just sounds like a early, a late or mid to late eighties Nintendo theme song. I'm, to a I'm video right there. I'm, hold like, on a sec. I'm right there with yeah. you, Chris, because on the Goblin Battle, I lit, for my notes, all I said was "Choose your fighter." It's menu music for a video game. <laughs> exactly, dude. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> that sounds like Streets of Rage, exactly. of which I beat. All three Streets of Rage games last weekend. 
Really good use of my time. Yes. Those soundtracks, man. You can't beat them. Yes. Streets of Rage. You're doing it in the right order, so yeah. Streets of Rage, then Double Dragon. But yeah, no, I, I it it's my take on his score work. I mean, it really. I think it's exactly what they were looking for. I, I've listened to the album several times through, like sitting through the score work songs, even though it's completely out of place with no context. And so you know, you really hear him, and you're like, Jesus, this is crazy. But then when you watch it in the uh, context of the movie, it really fits what's going on perfectly and especially for 1986 i mean it it's dated but it, it's it's what they wanted it's exactly what they wanted so as far as bowie's bowie's part in here um you know i think for the for his for his band um i believe he used a lot of his uh his swiss uh, the 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 Montreux Studios, the the Swiss this his Swiss band. He used the pretty much the same group that he used for his last soundtrack, which was the Absolute Beginners. Um, so I believe it's a little bit, you know, he doesn't have any of our you know, of our favorite players involved. Does anybody have a, a list of the their names? As any feature film would have, and any David Bowie album would have, this had quite a few musicians on it. I do not recognize many of them from other David Bowie albums. I recognize some of them from other uh, works. But we had David Bowie as the vocals and the producer. That's all he did. No instrumentation. R.F. Martin was the other producer. Trevor Jones, the producer as well, and one of the keyboard players. Ray Russell on lead guitar. Albert Collins on guitar. Dan Huff on guitar. Old Paul Westwood, that name rings a bell, on bass guitar. Will Lee on bass guitar. Matthew Slegelman on bass guitar. You know, if all these guys played bass at the same time, it'd be like that one Melvin's album. It's a, it's a deep cut for you folks out there. It's, a, it's an album called, I think it's called Batter Up or something of that nature, Mark. I don't know. And it, and it had multiple bass players on it. Neil Conti on the drums. Steve Ferrone on the drums. Robbie Buchanan on the keyboards and the synthesizer. Brian Gaschiogni on the keyboards. David Lawson on the keyboards. It's like a different keyboard player every day if you want one. Ray Warley on the saxophone. Bob Gay on the saxophone. Maurice Murphy on trumpet. And if your name is Maurice Murphy, you're going to be playing the trumpet. And then on the background vocals, Robin Beck, Sissy Houston, Danny John Jules, Fonzie Thornton, old friend of the show in the last episode, Luther Vandross, and then Shaka Khan makes an appearance. That's who's on this album. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey, Dave. Hey. It's me, Tony V, Tony Viscani, your old pal. Listen, I called you a few weeks ago, um, and you talked to me, and it was a very weird conversation, um, something about a Goblin King, and then, and then you said something like, you thought my name was Rizzo the Rat calling from Jim Henson Studios, and, and then I said, no, it's me, Tony, and then the line went dead. Like, um, anyways, 
So, yeah, hey, it's Tony, and, you know, hey, I saw your, in Variety Magazine, I saw that you're uh, going to be in the movies now, the pictures, and I saw, you know, a picture of you um, dressed as the Goblin King, and you're <laughs> looking great. Hey, listen, you're looking great. You're looking like Bon Jovi. Uh, your, your crotch area, I'm glad to see it's still up to fighting shape. Listen, I got the best idea. Now that I know you're at Hollyweird and you're doing that kind of stuff, I got the best idea for a movie. You got to give me a call back, pal. But listen, I'm not going to share it with you unless you're ready to apologize for edging me out of Let's Dance and, uh, and, and calling me to go to that resort in Jamaica and then, and then just ditching me on the beach. I mean, that was messed up, man. So when you're ready to apologize, have I got an idea for you. Hello. No one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey, Dave. Hey, it's me, Tony Viscani. Um, listen, I thought the last message I left you was pretty enticing. Uh, but still, nothing. Not a call for months. Not a call for months. And uh, they're starting to uh, release details about your new Labyrinth movie and the, and the soundtrack. <laughs> um, which, I mean, listen, sounds great. You're using, not me, of course. You're not using me. I think you're using the people you did Absolute Beginners with. Because you're in it, man. You are ingrained in that Hollywood sound. Um, so, listen your TV, okay? I'm just going to tell you the idea, okay? Because I think you got to hear this. And once you hear it, then you'll be giving me a call. My phone will be off the hook. So many Davids calling me. <laughs> All right, so listen. You're, you're turning on your TV. It's Friday night. You switch to CBS, 9 p.m. What's the first thing you see? Wheels of a brand new Porsche ripping down Pacific Coast Highway. The music, the synth blaster hitting you. Waka chica, waka chica, waka chica. It pans up. And who's driving? It's you, Dave, baby. You're in the driver's seat. You got, you got a leather jacket on. You got an eye patch. Looking pretty badass. Next to you, who's sitting there? Oh, and you know it's me. That's right, your boy Tony V. I'm in all denim. I've got aviators on. And I've got a blonde lion's mane hairstyle reaching up to the heavens. That's right, baby. We play partners. You get the, you get the, uh, the title right then. Glenn Rock. That's right, we're private investigators that look into all the homicides that happened in the world of rock and roll LA in the 1980s. You've got your Beverly Hills, you got your Malibu murders. This is, this is gonna be the best. I mean, listen, the intent, the, people already wanna see it. You're already involved in Hollywood. They're loving what you're doing. You got the acting chops. I've got that rock charisma, um, and the music. Uh, the ladies, listen, this writes itself, baby. So uh, I, I'm just gonna, listen, I'm gonna back off, I'm gonna wait by my phone, because once you let that idea sink in, I think we can finally start collaborating again, baby. I've been looking for my way to get into Hollywood, you've been looking for your way to get back with me, I, this is it. I'll be waiting. Let's 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 target in there, Mark. I think you were uh, you were you were getting to maybe our first song for track by track should be underground because the first one we hear. Obviously, it's the it's the uh, kind of underground refrain version. But yeah, let's get let's get right into it because that's where all those backup singers went. Um, and uh, let's hear a little bit of that and uh, and we'll we'll talk about them.
Okay. So it seemed like he uh, was trying to recapture uh, the Young Americans sound because we just talked about Young Americans, which I thought I may have not even connected the dots if we hadn't. But Luther Vandross was his his guiding light for Young Americans. He he uh, provided a lot of the background on the black funk soul music that Bowie was going after. And then he trained Bowie to sing in, in that way. And he trained all of the backing, background singers. Um, this song doesn't have the, in my opinion, the authenticity of the music, like the, the actual like musicianship doesn't have the authenticity of, of young Americans. Um, takes a little while to get going. Um, but then towards the end, when the singers all kick in, there, there, there's something undeniable to the end. But, all right. So underground for me, if we're just strictly talking about the full uh, song proper, not so much this um, prelude uh, that we get at track one, um, because because oh, I was going to say like you know uh, to. Uh, Cookie's point about the fact that um, I definitely got the starts out like the theme from Top Gun then it just goes into like a slick rendition of Underground um, and then it follows it up with some King's Quest Symphonics um, yes. but I, I I do actually like the song Underground but that's more towards the, the, the last track where you get it in its full um, version you know, looking at some of the reviews for this, uh, pushing ahead of the dame was not kind to this uh, to this soundtrack as a whole. Um, but I actually like the song. I think it's it uh, it kind of ties everything up at the end. It has this kind of celebratory feel to it. Um, the video for it is wild. Um, I don't know if you guys had a chance to see it. Um, it has oh, yeah. animation uh, elements kind of similar to the aha take on me video uh, brings back hoggle and the lady with the junk and some other, and David Bowie's not in his getup. He's in his like nightclub uh, look where he's wearing like this little slick black trench coat. Um, actually do like the video for it. I thought it was not bad um, considering it was also trying to push product <laughs> of this soundtrack, but you know, I wasn't bad. Um, and this has obviously Luther Vandross in there. Shaka Khan. This is her only time that her and Bowie have ever uh, been a part of that. Because you have that gospel-y, you know, thing that's going on in the back. Uh, I feel that he also has a pretty good solid vocal performance. Um, but is it overproduced? You bet your ass it is. It, <laughs> I mean, they're throwing everything in the kitchen sink on this track, and it's uh, it's bombastic. But for the if this was on like an actual Bowie record, I would probably be like, what what what's going on here? Um, but because of what it's like trying to do, like you know, I'm okay with it. I'm accepting to the fact that this is a song for a kids movie. Um, so yeah, that, that's my two cents on it. Yeah, still, if you played it next to anything off, like "Never Let Me Down," it, it would still probably sound superior. Even, yeah. <laughs> I mean, all of the all of his shit was overproduced during this time for sure. Oh yeah. Um, uh, lyrically, this song is about escaping to a fantasy world. Um, underground, you'll find someone true down in the underground, a land serene, a crystal moon. 
It's only forever, not long at all. Lost and lonely, that's underground. And then daddy, get me out of here. Sister, please take me down. It's just, uh, it turns into this gospel breakdown trying to find that, that place, so. Yeah, so when when I uh, when they play when it when it comes in as the opening, you know, we don't get title songs. We don't get opening titles anymore. That's like such an '80s thing. Maybe up to mid '90s where they needed to put their fucking credits in the beginning of a movie for three minutes. But it basically it just leaves me wanting this intro song but if we're talking about underground as a whole to me it only really is satisfying once those background vocals with i, I assume that i didn't i didn't it makes sense shaka khan's in there i didn't know luther vandross is he one of the backup singers then correct yeah okay so like once that kicks in that's where the song hits home for me it's like what about a crash today and just like oh you get rocking to it but like, when I think about like listening back on this Labyrinth album, the music after doing this this dive into Bowie, is I realized that this being my first Bowie exposure, is there are certain tones and notes he hits that like the ones that are in this album, those. High points are the songs that I gravitate towards in his other albums, if that makes sense. Like, we got like the, the daddy, daddy, get me out! Like the growly <laughs> yeah. in there. Yeah. It's yeah. like the like the high notes, you know? It's yeah, just you, like, Chris, you fit you fit right in on this podcast with all the uh, the, oh. the, the, the the scatting and the bebopping. This is perfect. Oh yeah, good job. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's just those are the those are the Bowie notes you crave, and like you don't get that. The intro song is one thing; it's like okay, that's what we're in for. But like the the ending credits at the end of the movie when they actually play Underground proper, it just it leave. I realized looking back that left me craving a deep dive of Bowie for the rest of my life. So yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I th- even in a song as overproduced as this, it's got that the kind of edginess that made Bowie be a pop singer, but also have artistic cred, and and that shines in 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 some of these songs big time. Yeah, no, I, I think this song is a big like Y ninety two adult contemporary. <laughs> our oh. fucking parents would like it vibe, but I gotta say, I like. I think there's some melodica in there, maybe or something resembling a melodica. Um, it kind of has a Saturday morning, late eighties, the cartoon vibe to it. Um, the saxophone is as plastic as plastic can be, but I dig it. Uh, the bass line, I mean, that's, that's eighties bass synth. Like you wouldn't believe everything about it just screams eighties. I, I sometimes wonder when they were recording these songs, if they understood how of a time it sounded, it's just bizarre that, you know, in the seventies, 
I'm going through a deep purple deep dive right now. My God, deep purple is better than I gave them ever credit for. <laughs> and none of that sounds dated to me. And then if you jump to the nineties, a lot of artists in the grunge era and whatnot, you know, if you didn't know they were part of the quote unquote grunge movement, they wouldn't sound dated. But for some reason, I don't know how it is that in the eighties, so many artists fell into this trap where they had this just plastic production sound to where even a good, like uplifting song like this, you know, in a vacuum without this plastic production, I think it would be a pretty, you know, fun tune and I do enjoy it, but the, the production definitely just uh, time stamps the shit out of it to where, uh, you know, if we didn't have the nostalgia for the movie, I don't know if we'd appreciate the song as much. Yeah. That's a battle I've fought through this whole thing is like, do I really like this song or do I just, did I, is it my childhood? You know, like, and a lot of it, eh, it was my childhood, but it's still satisfying on some level. I mean, I think a lot of this does have a little bit of nostalgia um, and a little bit of uh, just, I don't want to say ironic humor about it uh, because when I first, came back to labyrinth it was kind of a funny thing i wasn't really like enjoying the quality of it it was more like look how insane and nonsensical this movie is and it's geared for kids um and then i've like when i saw like my kids kind of light up about seeing some of the scenes then i was like no i get it now this is this is not meant to be something you ironically laugh at but i will say you know with People's tastes. I mean, whenever I think of Y92, I always think of the Beach Boys song Kokomo. And <laughs> this is essentially Bowie's Kokomo for me. Like, I, I, Man. I, I, I had a whole if, Y92 intro section to my in my notes that I didn't dig into. That's funny that you guys are dropping Y92 notes on this. <laughs> We have a lot of local references. Um, so this this single um, had a couple different versions. You can find them all in the streaming services. There's an extended dance mix. Um, you know, definitely bringing out that part that we like about the song. Um, I think it adds a little bit more beat to the some of the slower parts of the song too. Um, instrumental version, but uh, I particularly enjoyed the dub version of this. I know uh, I roll across the room. The dub version sounds like something that uh, Boogaloo Shrimp from the Breakin' movies would have been breakdancing to. Uh, they turned it into kind of like a, a fun little breakdancing song. They took that ridiculous synth bass line, um, the drums when the drums actually kick in, and then uh, just uh, some like synth flourishes that were just rammed through an echo box and, and, and blasted to the stratosphere in the background. The dub version's fun. And that's, I gotta it's, find it's that. I'm finding that. I love, I love <laughs> that stuff. I'm with you, Eric. That's my boy. That's my boy. Uh, so um, the song, I mean, uh, Eric, did you talk about the video at all? Uh, Mark did. Um, okay. I think we're good to move on to uh, the first single, 
the big single of this album, the one that everybody knows, and that's Magic Dance. You remind me of the babe. Babe with the power. Power of voodoo. Voodoo. You do. Do what? Remind me of the babe. I saw my babe. Yes, dance, magic dance, or just magic dance. I, I think this is the song that probably sticks in our mind from when we were kids. If you watch this album or this movie later as an adult, uh, with the influence of a you know a friend or a uh, a vitamin, you're gonna remember the scene. This 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 is from. Linux isn't here anymore. You can you can be more okay. I did, man, I did a shit ton of acid and watched this movie when I was like 20 years old. That was a huge, huge fucking mistake. Um, between, oh, the fiery scene on that. There, there's so many... Like uh, let me let me just let me just cut loose now that you know one of our my dear friends is not listening right now. Uh, between the scene where uh, the goblins are in the background when she's wishing her brother to go away, that was frightening. And then where the scene uh, where there's the hands, like a very specifically Mark, when, you know that same damn apartment we lived in for a minute, that Rockland apartment. Specifically, yeah. The, uh, the sh- you said down, like watching that and just being like, oh, this is a bad idea. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> and then, but then on top of that, uh, we're gonna get to the song soon, uh, the Chili Baby song where they're popping their heads off and kicking them around the room. That was just a bad Fuck idea. Fuck that yeah, song. No, it was a bad, bad, bad move. I have strong um, feelings about that song. I might, you might have to bleep me on that song. Well, we'll get there in a second. But uh, anyhow, as far as dance magic dance goes. Uh, you know, yeah. There's, I think there's many phases of us that like this, this whole labyrinth thing. When we were kids, uh, when we were growing up, and maybe watching this and, and absorbing it in a different way. And then I found, I bet every one of you, maybe I'm not gonna, you know, go to Reno right now, but I, I find just like dance, magic dance. I've danced with my kid to this song, and uh, it chokes me up thinking about it. It's just, it's tailor-made to grab your kid, if you have one, and throw him in the air and dance around with him. That's, uh, I, I think it's awesome. So that's my opinion. No, I agree. I mean, um, even if we're not going to watch this movie, um, my kids want to just fire up the little uh, clip that's on um, YouTube because there isn't actually an official music video for this. And um, the one thing that I would say about what you get in the movie um, is a lot shorter than what you get on the actual soundtrack. Um, I do think that having this song extend past the two and a half minute mark um, is a little unnecessary, but just to Steve's point, this song will always have a high place in my heart just because of just the sh- sheer joy. I mean, Bowie is looking straight down the barrel of the camera um, during in the film and uh you know putting his hands on his face and just kicking chickens and things and just kicking it up and uh the kid is just surrounded by all of these uh goblin things and that kid um is uh brian froud's son i think that's how you uh 
he we, was, we covered that. Yeah, we covered that. Yeah, yeah, Toby, yeah. Yeah, Toby. Toby. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, just thinking of putting my own kid in a situation like that where there's just all of these monsters. Apparently, the kid was not scared of the little monsters at all. Um, but in my mind, I would think that would be extremely traumatic. But yes, it wasn't. So, so much so they wanted... Uh, baby like cries and, and sounds and he wouldn't make any he was just quiet so Bowie had to do all those himself he, Bowie made all those the baby sounds yeah, he was, he, I want in the behind the scenes thing he's like we uh that baby wouldn't put two gurgles together we kicked it we hit it we did everything we could he really <laughs> he really battened his lips so I'm the baby on that track I thought, what the hell I've done? Oh boy, we got a a new uh, Bowie voice for the skits there, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, like, he really battened his lips. I was like, oh my god. (laughs) Uh, That the scene is incredible. It's, I mean, it's just thousand percent charisma from Bowie. Well, you could say that about every time he shows up on screen. Um, And then there's like. I think they started with 50 puppeteers in that room and they realized that wasn't enough and they crammed more people in there. Every single six inches of wall has a hole with, for a, for a hand to come through and manipulate a new creature. And yeah, live chickens walking around. I mean, it, that, that scene is impressive. It's just, the walls are alive with these puppets that are dancing. Um, as he's singing, it's, it's a, it's, it's kind of a, it's pretty unforgettable. Um, you know, just to talk a little bit about the classic, you remind me of the babe, but babe, babe with the power, what power, power of hoodoo, voodoo, you remind me of the babe. That is actually lifted. And this is Bowie. Bowie got to write all of his own music for this. That was another like clencher for mm-hmm. him is, is um, he wasn't doing like Trevor Jones didn't do like a songbook for the musical. Like that often happens in musicals. And he was just, he was just a voice voice box for it. You know, he got to write his own music for it. So, you know, given the themes of escaping to fantasy and, and this alluring kind of evil guy that's like the mystery, that, that he kind of represents the, the dark side of growing up, he got to do what he wanted. So, yeah, he lifted that line that you remind me of the babe from this old movie with Shirley Temple and Cary Grant called The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer which was about a, a little girl that is uh, infatuated with an older man. Um, and uh, that particular line, uh, a variation of that line is in, in, in that movie between the two, the two actors in that movie. So um, wow. he pulls that the song structure itself is very fifties. Um, you know, Bobby Sox <laughs> American bandstand, like old time rock and roll. Um, you know, my baby cries hard as she like that. The way it's done yeah. is is very old timey rock and roll. Um, and uh, the song itself, when you get away from the baby stuff, has very little to do um with the movie, but it is about somebody starting like a journey of life. Slap that baby, wake that baby up. The baby is going to grow up, and become an adult. Like, and that's that journey of becoming an adult the song's about um, it's all in his performance that it actually makes it dangerous. The lyrics aren't dangerous, but the way he performs it, you know, definitely well, the, gives the, it- the, the, the lyrics aren't dangerous, but some of the, uh, you know, that, that one part where he's a, uh, you know, baby blue, nobody knew he's a, uh, he, he's, he's doing some good vocal work there. I mean, oh, yeah. 
this this song is it, it, it lyrically. Yeah. Oh my! Oh my God! That's that's one of those uh, Bowie sounds you craved the rest of your life, Steve. Right yeah, no, the the goblin just appeared in my room. Uh, no, but then, you know this 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 song is you know r- lyrically ridiculous, but yeah. he still put effort into it vocally. So it's a uh, it, it's it's great. I mean, I, I don't know. Like if you were if you were a David Bowie fan in the eighties, let, let's say the same way all of us were Nine Inch Nails fans coming up, and then in nineteen ninety eight, let's say instead of doing Lost Highway, Trent Reznor fucking puts out. <laughs> I don't know, oh my god. A, a, yeah, like a Muppet Treasure Island soundtrack. How would we have reacted? That's what I think of when I think about the, you know dance, magic, dance. That's a good question. Oh I feel I feel yeah. like if you take the music on its own, it would have been a horrible disappointment. But and not the songs are bad. Well, when you pair it with the visuals ahead. and like Henson added a little bit of artistic edge to it that a lot of other movies like Top Gun <laughs> maybe doesn't have, <laughs> and yeah. and I think like. It just felt like a match made in heaven. I, I would have to imagine it did. Although there's some great uh, interview with Iggy Pop, who was visiting his friend Bowie on the set, and he's like, "What the hell? Why do you dress like Bon Jovi? Why are why, why you dressed like you're gonna go uh, ride horses with Bon Jovi with that hair right now?" Like it, it, it was like, but Bowie was loving it. He was like, "I get to dress like this. I get to sing these songs. I have these puppets around me. It's this is amazing." Bowie was like in his element on set for sure. Yeah, I mean, really, you think about it, like, this is probably, this is the first Bowie single we all heard. This was me- probably meant to be the single off of this album. You can just feel it. It's just laid out to be catchy. It's, what, babe, the babe with the pop. Like, you know, the whole call and response. You got the catchy chorus. You've got Bowie dancing around kind of awkwardly in this room full of puppets with the baby not freaking out in it. It's just, such a crazy scene in the movie, but the the song is not as chaotic as the scene is. And like, <laughs> that, Eric, I listened to that, that fucking aerobics remix of this song that you said. Oh yes, and yes. The yeah. only real difference with that is that instead of he just repeats like, "What kind of magic?" He just repeats that "What kind of magic?" Right. So, yeah, let me get into that. There there was a single version that was released. I don't know if you guys listened to it. It's so different. The single has a 7-inch, a 12-inch, a dub, and an instrumental version. different so what they do on that is it starts with a sample like uh you remind me of the babe power power and then it kicks in and the beats like it's like this dance beat and then their uh mike huff's guitar never stops in that song there's this whole like really cheesy 80s distortion guitar that plays over the whole thing but I kind of like it. It kind of adds this weird drive to it. And then the vocal samples are ridiculous. Like throughout it, it's like, 
this, this, this uh, vocal sample of dance just goes all up and down the scale. And uh, it is uh, ridiculous, but I, I can't help but enjoy all of the single versions of this song are crazy and 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 ridiculous. Did you guys listen to those? No. I know the aerobic remix, and, but like, yeah. And then the original version, like his growly voice and like the crooning he does, like Steve was saying, like those are like the things I look for in other Bowie songs. Uh, Mike Huff gets an eight bar guitar solo in the extended version of this. Like I said, there's guitar present. The single version, um, that's the biggest difference is there's plenty of guitar and then there's no Muppet voices in it. There's, uh, you're right, uh, Chris, he cuts out part of that chorus and then they just replace it with uh, like this like dance, like they, they, they chop and screw his vocals and make it into chipmunk vocals in the background. It's, it's wild. It's, it's a wild time. And they, they it was built for a uh, Richard Simmons VHS. All right, well, that brings us to, uh, you know, they have their adventures. They She has to solve riddles and all sorts of things. And at some point, they're lost in the woods. And we get Chili Down. Chris should start this. I feel Chris should. All right. He yeah. already kind of teased us a little bit. Yeah, let's do it. Fuck this song. Fuck this scene. I hated it when I was a kid. I hated how weird it felt. I hated how I knew there were people in black clothes with the black screen behind them bouncing heads slowly off the ground. I hate this scene. And watching this... Watching this again yesterday in 2020, hey, it's also very racist, okay? I hate this fucking song. <laughs> I can't listen to this song. Can't watch this scene. I'm, I I dropped the mic in the next group. <laughs> it, 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 I mean, I see what you're saying. Uh, I actually, when, when Bowie would dabble in ska in some of his albums in the 80s, uh, even like Kingdom Come off Scary Monsters or... Um, What's that that uh, damn song off Let's Dance? Uh, anyways, it it uh, always reminded me of this. Now he doesn't really sing on the song. That's not his voice. So the voices are the voices are Kevin Clash, uh, Danny John Jules, and Charles Augen. So I mean, culturally speaking, well, hold, hold, yes. Hold on. If you listen, he's buried in the mix. But yeah, no, it's a uh, you know Kevin Clash, uh, the, the Elmo guy that got kicked off being Elmo. Uh, the, the puppeteers bring it to the forefront, but David Bowie, he did actually guide them in how to sing this track. He did. And, and it, it's, he's, not, he's not singing on it, but he is, uh, he definitely helped produce and make it the sound that it is. Um, they are, they are culturally ra racially appropriate, but I see, I, I do see what you're saying. Like 
you know, I, I get what you're saying. There are there are black puppeteers uh, and and voice actors that are performing it, um, but uh, it does have a very very like sterile uh, island island uh, vocal sound. These fireys all definitely are. Um, you know, yeah, partying, are they islanders partying in Jamaica. Are they Africans? What right. it's like? Yeah, just kind of, like just kind of general. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think that argument could be made. Um, and then, and and you know, Bowie made a whole album dipping his toes in island music, and and somehow oh, it didn't it didn't seem as off putting as as this song, but. <laughs> There, I, I don't I don't I don't I don't hate this song. The scene is weird. Um, it's it's they were trying something. It's a break. It take, pulls you out of the story. I don't know if uh, Mark, you've used that already once. This is the scene that pulls me out a little bit just yeah. because what they're trying to do special effects wise. They're not it's not as effective as the rest of the movie. There. They what shouldn't have done it. They shouldn't have tried. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's. <laughs> It, and it, it, it's creepy, and they're just like, hey, we're going to pull our heads off and fucking haunt you with our heads. Like, we're just going to chase you around with our heads. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it is creepy, and if I was on acid, like, or a friend watching this, I would, would probably lose my shit. This, this is an acid nightmare. <laughs> this is a bad trip, the scene. Dude. But the song, the song, the song has melody to it that has a very, actually, it has like a, a, a hook that parallels um some of the notes in modern love um it's it's i only like the chorus i only like the chorus those two it's got its moments down with the fire gang that's the one line that is listenable to me in this whole song (laughs) (laughs) all right what do you guys think mark and steve what are you so i'll start before steve does because i feel like steve is gonna offer a counterpoint um i this song i i uh i don't really have a whole lot of um emotional connection to uh, I remember what always kind of bothered me about seeing it in the film was how blatantly obvious it was that it was such a green screen. Um, it really looks kind of cheap and I'm sure that has to do with the, um, the way that they had to design the puppets having to remove their limbs in a way that made it because they're probably the puppeteers are right behind them in wearing green and having to do all that. So, they are like, well, we have to do this not in a very practical way, so we're going to green screen this thing. But for the time, it just kind of bad. Um, and all throughout this, uh, it really did remind me of like because Kevin Cla- uh, Kevin Clash's voice was so recognizable uh, for me, being that it's the voice of Elmo. Um, I just heard that. So it wasn't my favorite scene in the film. I don't really feel like it added anything to the story. But looking back, as we've talked about um, some of the songs that we've kind of stumbled around, uh, across as we do this podcast, and we see like, yeah, this song kind of sounds like it is reminiscent of that song from Labyrinth, Chili Down. I think that was said a couple times or at least once yeah. on the Scary Monsters episode with Kingdom Come. I think that was what we were talking about. We were, um, and then we were also talking about that track off, uh, off Let's Dance. What's the what's the big ska song on that that one? Um, oh yes, yeah. I, I think I know what you're talking about. I just for the life of me, I can't remember the song title. Um, but I mean, it's fine. Uh, I don't have as 
negative feelings about it as Cookie does, but ricochet. I will ricochet. Ricochet. Yeah, I could yes. see that. Yeah. Ricochet. Yeah, especially in the like the verses. Yeah. Um a little right. bit more slowed down. This is more frenetic. But I don't know. I think for me, for when I see the scene, it's it's too much and I feel like um for the time it's got its technological limitations, which make me a little annoyed. Because everything else was so practical with these huge matte paintings and big old practical sets, and then you get this that looks like it clearly oh shit, was this during reshoots? So we gotta like gotta put this back out there. So I don't know. I don't know if it's just if it's just happenstance, but um on that hour long doc uh behind the scenes thing, um which by the way is great. You can find it on YouTube. Uh Jim Henson narrates the, the whole thing. Um, but this is the scene that George Lucas seemed to be on set for <laughs> the whole day. <laughs> like he's yeah, right there. Works. He's right there behind the camera uh, uh, on this particular it. scene. I, I didn't see him in any other, any other uh, shooting scenes. So um, yeah, he was there for that, pulling out some of that green, that uh, Phantom Menace green screen action. <laughs> yeah. 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 The, the power of myth. Um no, I, I like this song. I think it's extremely catchy. I like the chorus. I like the uh, uh, during the chorus, the the piano, just the the, the major key strikes. Um, it's not a, it's not a good song, but I appreciate how catchy it is. And yes, the rap breakdown is absolutely ridiculous. That's uh, just painfully bad. Um, it does stick out in the movie like a sore thumb. Uh, but I think this song taken as a whole outside of the movie is a good time. So I am, uh, I'm on team chili down. All right, team chili up. Good one. Uh, next is Thanks. as the world, <laughs> as the world falls down. So as the world falls down, I have to say that, uh, you know, part of the fun of this podcast is always appreciating things more that you never gave much thought to sometimes. Uh, I absolutely adore this song. I never thought much of it. I don't even know if I could have told you the name of it until I had to pay attention to it for the podcast. Uh, here in Plague Times, I find it to be extremely maybe heavy handed, but kind of fitting for some of the uh, anxieties some of us much might have right now. If you strip away the visuals from the movie, which are a whole other, you know, I'll let Eric get into the Jennifer Connelly, David Bowie thing, but standing on yeah. its own, I think uh, it's a, it's a, it's a good song that, um, the, the, it has some plastic bass, but, uh, overall, I think for mid eighties, David Bowie, it's not that bad. That's my, opinion of it yeah i 
I agree with you. This is uh, kind of a sleeper sleeper hit. Uh, obviously, that scene I always remember. It's it's one of the prettiest kind of moments in in Labyrinth. It is your Batman Returns meets Eyes Wide Shut. Your Masquerade Ball. She's been uh, drugged. A Hoggle has been forced to give her a poison apple, which um, sends her into this 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 other place. This so it's a dream within a dream moment. Um, Bowie, and, and I'm going to go ahead and credit uh, pushing ahead of the dame on this one, is channeling his Brian Ferry with his singing, his um, his kind of... Uh, Brian Ferry, I, I think, is like the quirky crooner. He, he hits crooner, but his voice is just fragile enough to not just not have the confidence of some of the, uh, the, the standard crooners, and um, I think he's doing that for sure here. The music isn't as say nuanced as say uh, Avalon which would have been time appropriate um, Roxy Music's Avalon which is a great album um, and Brian Ferry's crooning all over that thing uh, but I do I do agree with with that and once I read that I couldn't kind of disconnect the two but Bowie's always always had a kind of lifelong respect for Brian Ferry and uh, he's he's singing great on this song um, I like it there's a video for this song where Hoggle apparently owns a bar and grill and Bowie's singing at it as as uh, papers are printing up in the other room showing scenes from the movie. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a great little uh, great little power ballad here. I like it. And as far as the visuals you're talking about with the uh, old man and the young teenage girl, I, I, I get the problematic aspect, especially, you know, we've talked about the show before Bowie you know, in his forties and having maybe a 19 or 20 year old model girlfriend or something in the eighties, there is definitely something to unpack there. But the, you know, like I said before, Bowie represents the, this kind of, uh, the kind of, uh, lust side of adulthood, the dangerous side. And, um, you know, it's in this moment that she, she is absolutely tempted by him and pulled into him and they dance. But once he kind of crosses that line and takes the power of the situation, um, everybody kind of, kind of the, the scene gets crazy. Everybody kind of backs up and, it, and things go negative and, and, and dark. And, and it's that other side of being attracted to the bad boy, you know, the, uh, you know, when things actually do go bad, the reality of it. And um, thematically, this scene is very important to the movie. But I do get the critics saying, you know, oh, it's this teenage girl and this this guy. But that's, I mean, that's kind of the point. It's it's she's right at that that precipice of adulthood, and and um, it's the the temptation and the reality coming together, and 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 what that is, that emotional struggle. So, uh, cool scene, great song. All I have to say about this is that. Uh... Similar to what you think, uh, what you were saying, Eric, um, it's a 39 year old man pining for a 14 year old girl. Uh, it's it. If you put it in that context, it's it's uh, it's not a terrible song, but it just fits in a weird place for a movie for kids. Um, but that's, not, I, what can I, can that's not what it's about, though. I, I, know, that, that, I know that's not what it's about, but I'm just saying. But during the context of the scene, it seems like the reason that uh, Jareth is putting her through this is because he's not so much interested in the baby after all. He's interested in her. 
Um, and you know, and I think it's it's an okay song, but I think it would fit in perfectly on "Never Let Me Down." Um, that's all. Sure, I'll say. but not 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 romantically though. He's, hey, can I, he's trying to corrupt can, her. Can you guys? I mean, he's hear like me? the devil. Can you hear me? We can. Yeah, we go can. on. Can you hear me? Yes. All right. I just have one thing, and I agree with you, Eric or Mark. It is kind of creepy, and I don't know how you do this theme in this movie without it being creepy. But it's yeah. part of the fucking I don't know the story. Like when you're a teenage girl, maybe you have these fantasies about these guys and posters on your walls that you quite don't understand. Is it that deep at all? Or I think no. I, I think, think it was spot on. I, I mean, she, she had that that his figurine up on her mirror. Uh, yeah. in your room yeah exactly i mean she was reading the literal story leading up to the climactic scene when she was in the park before she threw a fit about her parents wanting her to babysit it's like yeah that's where she that's where she lived i mean so. this isn't this isn't uh you know kevin spacey in uh, american beauty <laughs> it's it's a little no. bit this scene represents something a little bit more thematic as opposed to just being yeah. like about a creepy uh, creepy, like sleazy forty-year-old going after a teenage girl. I mean, on screen, yes, you can't separate the image, but there's th- a thematic reason for it. So, to me, th- this is the number one song on this album. I can listen to this song on repeat. I don't know. I've, I've, I've at least done it five times in a row. I could probably go more than that, but it's. It's about, to me, it's about the place Bowie's voice goes in this song. It's just like, your eyes can be so cruel. It's just like, and like, when he's in the movie context, he's like, belting these songs out, but he's just like, on the on video, he's just like, talking. So it's so impactful to me that he's just like, belting these beautiful notes out but he's just like talking on video yeah it's um, like he's van- he's vamping but it's it's yeah it's just so like nonchalantly it's so, it's just, like rams home how powerful of an effect he has on her and you know as a result like her you have no power over me remark is like such a huge moment because you're like sucked into this moment where he's like you know, you're vexed by Bowie's vocal range and what he's doing in this in this song, you know? Like, and you almost, like, feel the same. When she says, you have no power over me, it's like, you, you are also broken from that spell. I mean, I watched it in that context last night. That's not how I normally watched it, but I was really high. And that's how I came to that conclusion. Spot on. Spot on. Uh, one interesting thing, uh, at this point in the movie, she's hallucinating and, you know, obviously she comes to in the junkyard. Um, there was supposed to be a scene where Hoggle was in a bar in the junkyard. There was supposed to be like some junkyard bar and he's drinking with that hat, that bird hat that the wise man's wearing. And, uh, and getting really drunk, crying about losing his only friend. They, they, they ended up not filming that, but that would have been a cool scene. (laughs) That would have that would have been your uh, your Tom Waits scene from the movie. Yeah. All right. Well, that takes us 
the movie continues. There's a whole epic battle between the heroes and uh, the goblin forces uh, cast by probably every single actor with dwarfism. Uh, back then they called them little people, but they're, you know, just people with dwarfism. Uh, you had Warwick Davis is in there. You had half the cast of Willow. Um, and uh, then you had that big mechanical steampunk giant, Humongous, uh, Humongous. Great, great little bit of visual there. Um, you have that battle, and then she gets into the castle, and you get your your Escher scene, where at the upside down stairs, Bowie's gothed out, just in his all black, and shows up for the last song that we're gonna be talking about called Within You. Let's hear a clip. So that was Within You. Um, this is the Andrew Lloyd Webber version of a final showdown. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's not bad. It uh, Cookie introduced himself as I move the stars for no one. I really like that little flip that he does when he goes upside down and then right oh, into yeah. her little face. It's like the action yes. figure. Awesome. Little great part. Um it is interesting because, you know, to my last point about as the world falls down, he really does seem like he does seem like the dejected lover, you know, that he wasn't he showed all of his emotions to her and she's rejecting him. And here he is, you know, um, just mad about it. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, what that's take. that's that. And you're not you're not wrong, but the way that he is kind of portrayed in the prequel that I read, but more kind of importantly in the, in, in that kind of book about the taking the story elements and what they wanted to do and things they didn't get to hash out. Like Bowie's understanding of his character wasn't that he even really was capable of romance. He, he was power hungry. He's, you know, so yes, he was dejected, but it wasn't about the love so much is that that was his way of trying to, to lure her. But really it was about, you know, control. 
power and control. And he, she is the one person that kind of showed up in his world and his realm and said, no, and, 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 uh, kind of fought back against that. And, um, and that's just, he's just, uh, he's throwing a tantrum. He's, he, he's does not like not getting his way. So you're right, but I don't really think, I don't think the ro- the romance was meant to be taken seriously from him. It was just a, a way he was trying to lure her in. Uh, I like your MC or your MC, uh, your Andrew Lloyd Webber, MC, MC Lloyd Webber. Uh, the uh, because, yeah, this this scene does like especially the lyrics play out like a stage play. It's the time signature changes three times. So it goes from three, four, 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 six, four. Um, and he uh, he's singing, he's talking, he's talk singing. He it is very much a stage delivery uh, of the song. Um, I like the music though. The music is cool. It's honestly some of the more creative music on this whole thing. The background music. It's it's very synthy. It's very. It's got some like uh, not ambient, but it, it's got some atmosphere to it that the rest of the soundtrack doesn't necessarily have. Um, and uh, it's just a cool scene where it's a conversation, uh, kind of done through song. Um, yeah, it's fun. It's it works really well in the movie. Uh, standalone when I'm listening to it on the record, I'm mostly listening to the background music. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's cool. Uh, Bowie looks awesome in the scene. So uh, <laughs> it's his, he's in black on black for this, for the, this particular scene. So Steve, what do you think? Within you, Steve still with us. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's all right. I mean, I think that, I think what stands out for me more than the song is the moment in the movie. It is. Yes. You know, it's, it's the climax with all the stairs everywhere. That's fun. Uh, the, the MC Escher thing going on. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, the song itself without the movie doesn't do much for me, but when I do listen to the soundtrack and remember the scene it's in the climactic scene, that's pretty fun. Um, I feel like I'm not sure if it was written prior to the film. To me, it sounds like they had the scene and they said, write a song that fits the scene. And that's what it is. So it's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if you can call this. I mean, in a listening to it from start to finish, I mean, would this really even be considered a song? It's like more a scene song. It's, it's not a song on its own it's it but when you watch it along with the video if it's perfectly like the weird little moment where he flips up from underneath and it's maybe like a puppet of him <laughs> but it fits perfectly with the with how the music goes at that time it's you know it's another moment where he's like belting out your eyes can be so cruel. And he's, but he's just like talking. And it's like, could you imagine if someone was just like looking at you and talking, but they were belting out this Bowie, beautiful music? Like, it, it, it's weird. Yeah, it's weird watching it on that, uh, in the viewpoint of now. On the uh, documentary, Chris, did you notice that when they were filming the scene, there was there was a moment where I thought they had Bowie strapped to something on his side, 
as they pulled him to the side and then actual Bowie walks out from behind him and it wasn't a trick. Yeah. Like it was actually like a behind the scene shot. So whatever that sideways yeah. Bowie is was like you said, it was like a puppet Bowie. It was a completely yeah. fabricated Bowie that they just pull off to the side and the real Bowie walks out. It was insane. It was, it was awesome. This is so much like, it's so weird. Like pairing this as a movie slash album because there's so many things that like Jim Henson, the Jim Henson company did that would not be done today. Like there would be the, the shortcuts would be taken. And like, just in this pure moment of 1986, Bowie was allowed to write these weird songs and like Henson was allowed to be like, make a 15 foot tall puppet for this 30 second scene. And like, it was, it, it just all came to be like that's at the right time. Cool. All right. Well, that's, I will say my comments, my comments earlier about um, the uh, age difference between the two people singing these songs or being in them. It's even more pronounced in this, this track within you. It's uh he's very much, you know, singing at Sarah. So it is a, uh, a little skeezy, if you will. It is skeezy. Definitely. Well, he's supposed to be a, a Satan type character, so it makes sense. Uh, that's all the songs. So let's uh, let's wrap this up with final thoughts, guys. So my final thoughts is that the soundtrack essentially breezes right by you. Um, the Trevor Jones score uh, it certainly sounds of the time, uh, it to, uh, I think it was cookies point earlier that it works better, um, with the, uh, in, in terms of the confines of watching the film rather than just piecing apart the score by itself. It's not bad, but it's of the time. Uh, and my more cynical things, it seemed like, uh, Trevor Jones was like, Oh shit. Uh, let me just go ahead and turn on the demo mode of my Casio keyboard and that'll be my rhythm section. And I'll just go ahead and, uh, you know, uh, do my thing. Um, but on other times I'm like, yeah, I see what he's trying to do. Obviously the budget wasn't there for him. They had already blown it on Bowie writing some original songs. Um, but as a whole for the soundtrack, I give it a 1.5 out of five bolts. And then for the movie, I give it a solid 2.5 out of five bolts. Um, I, I think that it's, it's good for what that it is, um, but I can't look upon it as an excellence in children filmmaking. I think that it's good, um, but it's just one of those things that it's certainly dated enough the time that it's not really designed to have this classic stance. I think if Bowie wasn't involved in it, Certainly, we would not only wouldn't be talking about it, but I don't think it would be whole held in such cult status as it is today. That's my feeling on the matter. Definitely could be wrong. Can I, can I, can I ask? Because um, Jim Henson pretty much got got axed out of doing any more dark fantasy movies after this. Um, do you think? Do, do you think this is superior to Dark Crystal or or vice versa? Um, I never had well, an emotional I'll open that question. I'll open that question to everybody involved. Sure. Um, I'll start then with the answer. I never had an emotional connection to Dark Crystal. Um, 
it was a little too steeped in fantasy for me, even at a young age. And um, I always ended up just wandering outside whenever it would play. And I, I've got to tell you, I think I've only seen it once all the way through my entire life. So that's just me, though. It's just not not my not fantasy. The fantasy genre, like I really have to. It I don't. It it's difficult for me to get really invested in it. And when I say fantasy, I kind of more think of this. I mean, Star Wars is a, 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 an absolute fantasy, but I, for whatever reason, it just has better storytelling for me. And sure, um, I don't know, better action sequences. I'd say. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, Dark Crystal never did anything for me. I got to tell you. Yeah. So I would say this one over that one. Okay. Okay. Cool. Uh, I would. Uh, I I think the soundtrack. I think the songs on here would be I two out of five bolts. Um, I think at the at Bowie's worst on this, it's still on par or better than. Uh, than some of the tonight or, or the never let me down stuff that he was doing at this time. Um, movie, the movie, I have a, a strong nostalgic connection to. I actually do like dark crystal. I think dark crystal is a better story. Um, I think it's more of an impressive feat from an artistic standpoint. And now I can't even say it objectively because the Netflix show was added so much to the lore that it's, it's become its own beast and monster. Um, but I would say, I'd say I, get, I would give this movie like a 2.5 out of five. The, 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 the story maybe isn't as strong. The theme is great and they stay on point the whole time. Um, theme wise, it's just, are all the scenes as effective in telling it? Not necessarily. Um, so that's what I have to say about that. Chris guest. What do you think? Yeah. So I, I, I would say, um, I mean, I, I've had a really hard time separating nostalgia from actual good content. I've tried really hard and the only middle ground I can find is 2.5 because I can't trust. (laughs) I can't trust if I love it so much because of just the comfort of the warm 80s. And what that was compared to now in the adulthood of 2020, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, versus like actual good Bowie music. I cannot separate myself. So I'm going to just go right down the middle. And like, also like as far as like movie, I have to give this a 4.0 because I respect Jim Henson oh. and what. Oh. What he accomplished in his life. I mean, this man took something that people scoffed at, puppetry, and made it a viable career for so many people. And had such a vision and carried it out and it carried down to his children and it carried down to another generation through us, through this and Dark Crystal and Muppets and Fraggle Rock and all of his other crazy-ass schemes he had going on in his head. I just, I cannot not respect that. And I just, I have to give it, I mean, for 1986, 
the things they did that they were so unnecessary, like this, we have to make a 15 foot robot that can have robotic arms that crash this axe down. They could have done like a miniature of that. Uh, we have to make this giant worm for this little one little scene. Like they did so many things that were so unnecessary because they believed in the quality of their product and just the Jim Henson legacy is so enveloped in this movie and I love it so much because of that. Ah, and it's got a lot of heart. Henson was artistry and heart where artistry and heart collide. And he was one of the, he was one of the good ones for sure. In 1990, we lost him, man. It feels like we had him so much longer than that. Well, his, yeah, his company has carried on and, and in, in his spirit for the most part. So. Yeah, I just want to throw in one more thing. I can't believe none of us mentioned how amazing that little worm's uh, scarf was uh, at the very beginning. (laughs) Yes. Right. Hello. Hello. (laughs) So amazing. Hello. That scene. I feel like that was the Monty Python. Oh no, you don't want to go that way. That's the wrong way. And take oh, you right to the castle. Take you right to the castle. <laughs> and she goes the other way. Yeah, exactly. That, oh, that got right to the castle. That was the scene where I was no, like, "This seems like a Monty Python movie." And then I and I looked and I was like, "Oh shit, Terry Jones." Okay, there it is. Yeah. There's, there's, there's uh, Eric. You didn't ask me my opinion yet. Uh, I'll give it a uh, oh, movie. The movie, the movie. I'll give a, a three and the soundtrack. I'll give a one point five. And um, the movie's great. But so much of it is nostalgia. But my goodness, let's just, uh, you know, so many of the characters we didn't really get a chance to focus on tonight because this is not that podcast. We're here to talk about the music. But you had that goddamn worm. You had Hoggle. You had uh, Ludo, the giant, uh, you know, thing, internal stench. You had uh, Sir Didymus riding another dog. You had all those scenes like, there are those scenes. A cool theme in the movie is where you think something's extremely deadly, like the uh, they're in the they're in the sewers and there's that drill coming for them. They jump out of the way, and then it turns out the people pushing the drill was just a couple of dumb little muppets that were like <laughs> yeah. the size of a two year. You know, <laughs> yeah. there's a few other scenes like that. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. There's a there's a whole lot of like you know this thing seems so dangerously, but actually it's an illusion, Sarah. There's a lot of yeah. that in there. Yeah. Um, fun movie, uh, great puppetry. If we uh, didn't have nostalgia, who knows how much we'd actually like it? But yeah. I would suggest Labyrinth to anybody that wants to watch it. Here, here. Good stuff. And our listeners, they're pretty much crazy about this album. We should uh, definitely mention we open things up on our Facebook page for people to comment. If you're not following us on that, you should, or Twitter. Um, Joe Vieira, uh, regular guest said movies, great songs are uneven worlds fall down as a masterpiece. Uh, Alex Alt says movies, incredible songs are solid. He likes underground. You know who else likes underground? A lot of people, including, uh, Lonnie Chant, who's been fascinated with David Bowie since this movie. Nick Meyer says within you is an underrated masterpiece. Um, Kelly Cocker and Dietz, uh, seemed very confused on uh, whether she liked this movie or not. Um, Amber Lee says it's one of her favorite movies of all time. Anyways, a lot of, a lot of feedback on this one. Um, 
All right. Well, shall we see what's next on the docket? Let's do it. Oh, yeah. Yep. Look at that. You're here for it, Mr. Chris. I'm privy. All right. It's got to land us somewhere in the 90s. Uh, four. Four. Um, that is Earthling. Play that oh, funky boy. music. All right, Earthling. Play that drum and bass. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Do it. That's right, Earthling. Yep, strap on your jinkos, baby. We're going to Earthling. <laughs> did you ever? Did you ever own jinkos, Eric? No, I did. No, no, I did not. Chris, you wore jinkos. Not not ridiculous jinkos, but plenty. Oh, baggy. the more conservative jinkos. The uh, yeah, it was the like ones a, that only stick you know. out six inches from your heel on each side. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. Let's yeah. not get crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Mark was more of a, a pipes man. Those guys ever wore pipes. <laughs> I, I was I was I was in a uh, utilica they, 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 they were the. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they were the gym boys to Jinko's uh, Taco Bell, if you will. So, pipes. <laughs> All right, Earthling will be fun. I uh, I know I, I I know I really like a couple songs on it, but I have not given it the close listen. So this will be a good this will be a good one. Oh, right, it's, it's, a Reeves, Gabriel, it's a Reeves Gabriel showcase, and I tell you, old Reeves, I've learned he's a uh, guy on Twitter that loves being on Twitter. So if oh. you want to hear what a gentleman that played guitar for David Bowie during the entire 90s has to say, and he went, oh, you know, went to join the here, that's him. All right. Oh, Reeves. Well, he's got to be doing better work than he did with yeah. Tim Machine. It's just law of averages. So. Hey, guys. Thank you uh, so much for welcoming me, and uh, hope to hoist... Uh, beverage in your general vicinity one day be great be great be great to get some some face time general and steve you have less than a month till the baby's born yep yep all right you're gonna one, be fine one episode a week we'll be done we'll be done exactly it's a race i know it is a race who's coming out first all right our new episode or steve's son all right <laughs> <laughs> Slap that baby. Uh, so, Chris, thanks again for Mark. joining us. That was great. Um, I have never had the pleasure, I don't think, of ever maybe seeing you in person. I want to say that's probably a lie, uh, but uh, I don't think so, man. It, yeah, one day. Yeah, he's uh, he's about nine feet tall. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you 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 can't can't miss him. Can't miss him. Yeah. One you of my one of my favorite. One of my favorite A's games I ever went to, uh, Chris and I went to, and we drug Eric with us, and it was a good time. Was the one I brought? Uh, was it just me or the one I brought Lennox? Because I was the one you brought Lennox. That game, yeah. Well, I remember the first time I met I met Chris. I brought Lennox, and we took the the train. It was awesome. The second time was just me, and that was when uh, we were watching the game, and I think Steve like almost got in a fight with somebody, and I kept saying. Like everybody would boo the other team, and I'd say, "Come on, guys, he's just doing his job." And 
Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. You were you were the you were the uh, voice of reason. <laughs> but yeah, the, the the first time I met you, Eric, Steve was late. You showed up with Lennox. Oh yeah. To our car, we had a little tailgate going. We like gave Lennox some uh, fruit roll-ups. Gave you some beer. That was great. And oh. then uh, Lennox had his first baseball experience. It was a, that it was, was a great beautiful. day. That was like a great park, day. It was the A's. It was the Oakland A's, not the San Francisco Giants. Okay. Correct. Correct. Yeah, that was a great day. That was a great day. There's a great picture that shows up on my timeline every year from that day. It was, <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it was a good. It was a good day. Beautiful. Well, thank you guys again. Absolutely. You can come back anytime. Uh, we certainly enjoyed having you. Um, so. With that, folks, uh, we hope that we got you safely through the labyrinth. And uh, as always, we hope that we brought you closer to Pod. Falling in love. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. So, well, thank uh, you guys. Chris, leave your breathless record. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. Watch it in slow